Before we get to the text, last week I covered Mark 6, 1 through 6. And in Mark, in Mark chapter 6, you have verses 1 through 29. And, and these, these verses, they fit together as, as a single unit. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. And those verses deal with Jesus preaching in Nazareth, his hometown, and being rejected by his neighbors, his relatives, and his own household. And in verses 7 through 13, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and preach the same message he's been preaching, and Jesus gives them authority as his messengers. And then, in verses 14 through 29, we read the account of John the Baptist confronting the sin of Herod and Herodias, and then John's subsequent martyrdom. So those three units, when you hold those three passages together, we have a foreshadowing of the climax of Mark's gospel. And where Mark is headed at his climax is he's going to show the, the rejection and sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus himself will be rejected. Jesus himself will give up his life. And at the end of the gospel, we see Jesus' call for those who would be his disciples to follow him on, his Calvary, on the Calvary road. So Jesus is going to go to Calvary and give up his life, and he's calling us as his disciples to follow him and go with him, to pick up our cross and follow him. And this passage is laying the groundwork for that. It's, it's foreshadowing that. And my, my plan all week has been to unpack that whole dynamic. So last week I, I started with verses 1 through 6, and my plan was to kind of take that to the finish line. But as, I, as I've studied the text and, and sat with the puzzle pieces of this section, it became clear that I have more than I can cover in one sermon. And so this is part one. I had the, I had the sermon divided into two major points, and when I finished the manuscript for the first point, I realized that's a sermon. That's, that's a whole thing. If I try to go more, these people are going to be unhappy. So consider last Sunday as part one, this morning as part two, and next Sunday as part three. This, this Sunday's sermon lays the groundwork for where we're going to go next week. And so in, in your uh, bulletin, it says that the sermon text is Mark chapter 6, 7 through 29, but we're going to only read Mark 6, verses 7 through 20. If you have a scripture journal, it's on page 34. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a black Bible in the seat in front of you. And it's on page 790 in that Bible. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 20. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So we're going to stop there for this morning, and then next week we'll finish the section. What I, what I see here this morning is two, two pieces. First, we have someone who's confronted and then comforted and then saved and sent. This is, this is a picture of the Christian life. And in the Christian life, we are confronted and comforted. We are saved and sent. So let's look at this confrontation. The, the confrontation is of John confronting Herod and his wife Herodias. Throughout the gospel, Mark portrays Jesus' mission as one of preaching and teaching, and and he summarizes Jesus' message as one of repentance. So throughout the gospel, Jesus is always preaching. That's his main job. And the message of his preaching is repent. We see that all the way back. We've, We've mentioned this verse many times. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, after John's arrest, which is being talked about more here, after John's arrest, Jesus begins proclaiming the gospel of God or preaching. And his sermon is, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Jesus' message. Up to this point in Mark, Jesus' proclamation that he has come as king, he's the Christ, he's the king, that that message that he has come as king and those listening should repent has been mainly given to crowds. Jesus has gone from village to village, from town to town, and he has gathered crowds around him, and he has said to the crowds, repent. It's similar to what I do each Sunday, what I'm doing right now. I stand up, one person stands up in front of many people, addresses them as a group. So his preaching has been one person to many people in the crowds. And because Jesus is speaking mainly to crowds, Jesus' preaching is more broad and general. There's there's still an authority, there's, there's a weightiness to his words, there's a call to action and change, but it's necessarily more abstract so that it applies more broadly to more people. So he gets up and he says, all of you, Repent and believe the gospel. 
He's speaking to an entire audience. And that makes this passage helpful. This interaction between John the Baptist and Herod and Herodias is is really striking. Because whereas the call to repentance up to this point in Mark's gospel, the call to repentance has been broad and general, here in this passage it's narrow and specific. John is not preaching to a crowd. He is looking at two people and confronting two people. So the Herod mentioned in verse 14, King Herod, he is Herod Antipas, and he's the the son of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great from the birth stories about Jesus in Matthew chapter 2? The Herodian dynasty, so King Herod the Great, and then all the sons that came after him and ruled, the Herodian dynasty is a mess. I don't know every detail about your family life, but your family's dysfunction is nothing compared to this family. If the Herodian dynasty was an HBO drama, I, as your pastor, would disapprove of you watching it. This this family is messy. Herod the Great was half Edomite, from from the country of Edom, half Edomite, half Jewish, And he became the client king or or like the puppet king under the Romans. Uh, he, He became the puppet king of Israel under the authority of the Romans. So he's working on behalf of the Romans. Herod was infamous for how ruthless he was. He murdered at least one of his wives, several of his sons, and of course there's the story of Matthew 2, when, when, Jesus, or when Herod commands the slaughter of, of boys to and under in Bethlehem. Herod is a ruthless killer, a horrendous human. Power, influence, and self-interest were all that mattered to Herod. All he cared about, preserving his throne. And Herod's son, Herod Antipas, who we're dealing with here in Mark 6, He served under the Romans as a tetrarch, which is essentially a governor of a portion of the Roman province that Israel was contained in. So he's he's also ruling under Roman authority. And Herodias, meanwhile, she is the former wife of Herod Antipas' brother Philip. And both Herod and Herodias have divorced their first spouses, presumably for unbiblical reasons, and they have now married in direct violation of several Old Testament commands in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and and elsewhere. And notice that in verse 14, Mark refers to Herod as King Herod. And in verse 23, after Herodias' daughter, who, by the way, would have been Herod's niece, has pleased Herod and and his guests with her dancing, Herod promises her whatever she wants up to half his kingdom. See that in in verse 23. Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Herod is not a king and he does not have a kingdom to give away. So, So step back and look at the full picture of these two people, Herod and Herodias. 
Every element of their life is a lie and a counterfeit. Herod is not a rightful Jewish king from the line of David. And he is not even a puppet king by Roman standards like his dad was. He's just a governor. And yet, he considers himself king. It's a lie. Herod's marriage is a lie. He has wrongly divorced and wrongly married the wife of his brother. Herod is a counterfeit king living with his counterfeit queen, ignoring God's law and living by their own arbitrary rules. That's the picture we have here. And John the Baptist names their sin. Verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John looks at Herod and Herodias in the eye, and he says, you should not do what you are doing. It is wrong, and it dishonors God. Your life, your heart, and your actions are out of step with God and his character. You are acting as king and queen of your lives, but you are not. Get off the throne and put God in his rightful place. Do you see that you are Herod? Do you see that you are Herodias? The interaction between John the Baptist and Herod and Herodias is a paradigm of the interaction between Jesus and every one of us. Before we are anything else with Jesus, we are Herod and Herodias. Friends, inasmuch as you are living your life apart from Christ and by your own rules, you are an imposter. You are a counterfeit king or queen. You are sitting on a throne that doesn't belong to you. You are passing arbitrary laws you have no authority to make that suit your desires. And Jesus does not mean to generally address your abstract sinfulness. He means to address your specific sin and rebellion. Nobody goes to jail for breaking the law. You go to jail, you are convicted of specific crimes. Murder, breaking and entering, assault, robbery, embezzlement, etc., we go to jail for, for breaking specific laws. And it's the same before Christ. Christ does not convict us of general sin. He convicts us of our sin, our specific ways of dishonoring him, our ways of rebelling against him. So how is Christ probing your heart? What does he mean to reveal in you? To Herod... John says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What would he say to you? What are others saying to you? Where is your conscience convicting you? It is not lawful for you to harbor that bitterness in your heart. It is not lawful for you to lash out in anger like that. It is not lawful for you to puff yourself up 
while gossiping and speaking poorly about others. It is not lawful for you to indulge your selfish desires and ignore the needs around you. It is not lawful for you. You are in the wrong. You are in rebellion. The law and your conscience bear witness against you, against me. It is not lawful for me. It is not lawful for you. So there's the confrontation. You are Herod. You are Herodias. It is not lawful for you to be doing what you are doing. But there's comfort. This confrontation, it's intensely unpleasant. Our eyes sting. Our heart sinks into our stomach. Everything in us screams that we should run away or lash out at the one exposing us in this way. But it is a confrontation with an offer of comfort. The message to Herod and Herodias and to every single one of us is not, you are an imposter king or queen and the real king is here. Your life is forfeit. Prepare to die. That's not the message. The message is, you are an imposter. What you are doing is not lawful. Repent and be forgiven. Bow down to the true king and receive mercy and grace. If you relinquish the throne of your heart to its rightful owner, you can live forever with the real king as his brother or sister as his beloved friend. There is that offer for you. Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Come to Jesus. Rest in Jesus, submit to Jesus, trust Jesus, and you will not be crushed. You will not be condemned. You will not be destroyed. You will be saved. You will be restored. You will be made new. But only if you come, only if you repent, only if you submit, only if you surrender a painful confrontation, and breathtaking comfort. It's the story of Jacob in Genesis. If you look at Jacob's life, beginning in in Genesis 25, you see a young man who is intelligent and driven, but arrogant, self-centered, and deceitful. Jacob is the king of his life early on. And God continually pursues Jacob. God continually puts obstacles and challenges in Jacob's path. And Jacob continually solves those problems and moves those obstacles with his own strength and his own intelligence. And then one night, God places himself in Jacob's path. There's a strange story, and you can read the story this week on your own. It's in Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. There's a strange story where Jacob is confronted in the night by a mysterious man whom Jacob later comes to realize is God himself. There's this nighttime confrontation 
And during the night, God wrestles Jacob. And Jacob refuses to yield. All night long, they wrestle one another. And finally, as day is about to break, God dislocates Jacob's hip, leaving him with a limp. And effectively, God ends Jacob's career as the self-sufficient king of his own life. God pins Jacob to the ground and forces him to cry, Uncle, forces him to acknowledge that he can't survive on his own, that he needs someone bigger, stronger, and wiser than him to run his life. Jacob needs a God, and it can't be him anymore. Christina sent me a a quote yesterday from Tim, Tim Keller. He said this, You are underqualified for the job of master and commander of your own life. You're not qualified. You are a lousy king or queen. You are a lousy God. When we acknowledge that, and when we turn that job over to the one who is qualified, to the God who made us, loves us, and redeems us, things will change. We will walk with a limp, but we will walk in peace and hope and freedom with him. So we're confronted as imposters, exposed as counterfeits, and offered comfort to come back. Offered comfort to come back under Christ's reign, to be forgiven of our sins. Confronted and comforted, and then we are saved and sent. What does Jesus do with us after he restores us to a rightful relationship to him? After he becomes our king and we become his beloved, satisfied subjects, what does he do with us? He commissions us to call others to that same comfort. He sends us out to confront others and offer them the comfort that we have received. That's what we see in verses 7 through 13. Verse 7, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So they're called, they're sent out, and they're given authority. The disciples have been following Jesus, watching his ministry, watching him teach and preach and perform miraculous signs. And now Jesus tells them to do what he has been do what he has been doing and gives them authority as royal messengers. Jesus deputizes them to wage spiritual warfare on his behalf. Jesus says to the disciples then and to us now, you were in rebellion. And now you have come under the grace and mercy of my rule and reign. Go to other rebels and call them to that same grace and mercy through their repentance. Do you you understand what this means for our tone and posture as we call others to follow Christ? We never stand over people as blameless and clean. 
pointing out their failure and impurity. We are forgiven sinners. We are pardoned insurrectionists, inviting others to that same forgiveness and pardon. We say what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, therefore, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we do. We are ambassadors calling people to come under the authority of the risen and reigning king, like we have. Calling others to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their attempt to run their own lives, like we have. A Christian is someone who says to others, Jesus has stormed the castle of my heart and forcefully removed me from the throne and set himself up as Lord. And it is the best thing that has ever happened to me. Let's pray. Father, when, uh, when Jesus asks Peter, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the king. And, and Jesus responds to Peter and he says, Peter, you are right. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, would you cause your word, would you cause the reality that Jesus Christ is king, cause that to overcome our hearts. We pray that the gates of hell would not prevail in our lives over the reality that Jesus is king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.